I guess that's my cue. What is a child's favorite question? Why? For most kids, it is the question of why. Why do I have to put my shoes on? Why do we have to go to the store? Why do I have to eat green vegetables? Most kids want to know the reason behind the decisions we make and the actions that they're told to do. Sometimes it's genuine curiosity, yes, innocent. Other times it's more subtle disobedience. Adults still have curiosity, but it seems to me that the main question they're concerned with is the question of how. It's not that they're not concerned with the question of why, but how seems to dominate the thinking of most. Just observe our television and our internet habits. Think of various popular television channels and programs. I like to pick on HGTV, uh, but I'll lump in Food Network as well, and I actually enjoy programs of both of these channels. But HGTV and Food Network, they don't just show pictures of finished houses and finished dishes of food. No, that people watch how a house is built and how food is made. Think of a criminal or a detective show. It's interesting because of how the case is resolved. Sports fans, think of pre-game interviews, mid-game interviews, or post-game interviews. Reporters usually ask, how are you going to win the game? How did you win the game? How did you make that play? Seems like pretty obvious questions. And which is why Greg Popovich, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, is so refreshing. Because he'll be asked a question like, how are you going to win the game? And he'll just say, we have to score more baskets than the other team. <laughs> but think again of any program with celebrities, late night talk shows, or awards shows. We're interested in hearing what successful people think. How they made it to where they are. Now, focusing on the how is not necessarily a bad thing. It's how we learn. It's the process. It's the means to the end. It's the math teacher's demand to the student to show her work. For me, I love learning how subtle and quirky parts of our economy work, like on the podcast Planet Money. I love learning how different leaders and entrepreneurs think. I love learning how parts of history have unfolded. As we approach Galatians this morning, this portion of it, we see that Paul is dealing with the most important how question that anyone will ever face. And that is how can sinful people stand before a perfectly holy God? How can sinful people stand before a perfectly holy God? So we come then to Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 14. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, because you'll see verse 6 is sort of a transition verse. So Galatians 3. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith is that main hinge. 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Let's pray as we begin. God, let what is preached be faithful to what is there in your word. Spirit, work through your word to point us to Christ and shape us to be more like him. Let us leave here being more and more impressed with who Jesus is and what he has done. We pray this in his name. Amen. The main point of this passage, that it culminates in verse 14, is what it's all working towards. And that is the way to blessing or that righteous declaration that we've been talking about is through the promised seed of Abraham, Christ, our substitute. The way to blessing is through the promised seed of Abraham, Christ, our substitute. So we'll unfold this in three different points. The first is that we follow the example of Abraham because this has always been God's plan. That's verses 6 to 9. Secondly, we realize the law's inability because of our own sinfulness. That's verses 10 to 12. Finally, we cling to Christ as our substitute because of his sinlessness. That's verses 13 to 14. Firstly, we follow the example of Abraham because this has always been God's plan. So if you're now joining us, if you haven't been here for Galatians or if you've missed the past couple of weeks or if you just need a review, I think it's always helpful for us to see where we are in the book. And it's more than a book, it's a letter. And from the very beginning of this letter from Paul to the churches in southern Galatia, which would be in the southern part of modern-day Turkey, this letter from Paul to the churches in southern Galatia, which he planted on his first missionary journey, recorded in Acts 13 and 14, this letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia has an immediate defensive posture. This is the case because of a group known as the Judaizers, we remember, probably familiar by now, proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, but at the same time supplemented, added to his work by saying that to become completely righteous, to become completely accepted, one had to observe the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. These are things like dietary restrictions and for males, circumcision. 
to substantiate their claim, the Judaizers had to subvert Paul as a teacher, as an apostle. And they also had to subvert what Paul preached because it didn't line up. So Paul has an immediate defensive posture. He responds to what they've been saying. He responds by telling a story, his autobiography, and that lasts for the first two chapters. He recalls how he was genuinely called by God, received the gospel, and confirmed his gospel with other apostles in Jerusalem. Paul then lays out what his gospel is, what the gospel is, justification by faith, as he recounts the gospel's authority in the church over and above even a man like Peter who acted hypocritically. He hammers home that it is nothing that we do that gets us good legal standing with God. It is nothing that we do but what Christ has done. And the only way to unite with what Christ has done is by faith. Last week, Paul begins to prove this as we look to chapter 3, that we are justified upon our profession of faith. So he appeals to this indisputable reality that the Galatians received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And so Paul is saying, if you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, then you are also made right with God when you believed. And you don't go back to the old way of doing. You continue in faith. You continue to grow by faith. That growth is more than just external doing. That we are, have that righteous declaration with God, justification, but we still ourselves experience sin. So we have to continue to lay hold of Christ by faith in our hearts. Removing those extra roots that we seek life in besides Christ. So if the reception of the Spirit upon faith shows that the Galatians were justified, obtained that righteous declaration, then so does Scripture. And this is what Paul begins to do in verse 6 of chapter 3. He appeals to Scripture that no one has ever earned a good legal standing based on their obedience, based on what they do. But it has always been by faith in God's provision. Indeed, we can see Paul's train of thought here. So in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, he's discussing faith. And that discussion of faith leads him to discuss Abraham's faith, beginning in verse 6. And Abraham's faith leads to Abraham's blessing in verse 9. And Abraham's blessing is the culmination of the next paragraph in verse 14. So, why Abraham? To our modern sensibilities, if we were asked to defend justification by faith, I don't know if bringing up Abraham would be the first thing on our radars. So why does Paul bring up Abraham here? Well, he was important to the Jews then, and he was important to the Judaizers. Having Abraham as their father was a common appeal for the Jews of that day. Even John the Baptist anticipated it. We read in Matthew 3, 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Abraham was a common appeal. Even Jesus runs into it in John chapter 8. However, for the Judaizers, it's more that appealing to Abraham was the cool and hip thing to do. Appealing to Abraham was especially relevant for this situation. It was especially relevant to appeal to Abraham for the Gentile Christians in Galatia. Why? Well, because Abraham himself was a Gentile. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And God called him out of that land. That land surrounded by pagans. Moreover, he was a Gentile without the law, and he still obeyed God. So this was a perfect example for the Gentile Christians of Galatia. And the Judaizers said Abraham was justified by his obedience. And moreover, if they want to be blessed like Abraham, if they want to get that justification, then they need to be circumcised, that they need to observe the Old Testament law. After all, this is what Genesis 17.10 says. They do some proof texting. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So this is a strong case. But Paul goes along with their tactic. He plays their game. And he ends up using their strategy against them. So to be a son of Abraham, Paul says, is to be blessed along with him. To be a son of Abraham is to be blessed along with him. We see that in verse 9. But what is the blessing of Abraham? The blessing of Abraham, we see in verse 6, is to be counted as righteous. To be counted as righteous. In other words, to be justified. Now the question is that all-important how. How do we get the, justif- the blessing of Abraham, that justification? Go back to verse 6. How did Abraham get it? His faith, when he believed. So you see, what better model for the Gentile Christians in Galatia? He flips this around. This was, a, this was a Gentile called out from a foreign land. And he was justified not by doing, but by faith. So in verse 6, Paul quotes Genesis 15, which we read earlier. He quotes Genesis 15, 6. And what is it that Abraham believed? It says that he believed God. He didn't, be, he didn't just believe in God, that he's real, that he exists. He believed God. He believed that God would keep his promise. He believed the God of the promise. So what was this promise exactly? So we remember that Abram wasn't exactly a young whippersnapper, that he was approaching the age of 100, and yet God had promised him a child. Not just a child, but Genesis 15, God brings him outside when it's dark. Have you ever been in the country, no light pollution, And you see all the stars. That is breathtaking. And God tells Abram, this is what your offspring is going to be. And Abram says, I don't even have a kid yet. I don't even have one. 
Yet what does Abraham do? Verse 6 of Genesis 15, Abram believes God. He didn't know how it was going to happen, but he believed God. And to prove that God would be the one who provides, God walked through a set of dead animals as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, this seems sort of strange to us, but it was essentially cross my heart and hope to die on steroids. So it's making an oath, and it's say, the person who makes it is essentially saying, let me become like these dead animals if I do not carry out this oath. And it's not Abraham who walks through those animals. It's God himself. It is God who will provide And Abraham believed God. He believed that God would do this. And what happened when Abraham believed? He was counted as righteousness. Now the word count literally means a credit. He was given something outside of himself. Now it would make sense if Abraham believed God and therefore started behaving more righteously, and therefore God declared him righteous. But that's not what happened. God treats Abraham as if he were already righteous. He counted it to him upon his profession of faith. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, you know that this man was anything but righteous. When he was in trouble in Egypt, two times he sold out his wife. This was not inherently in Abraham. But that's the amazing thing. That God declares as righteous those who are in themselves unrighteous. It's one of the favorite sayings of Martin Luther. Justified and at the same time a sinner. And when did this happen? When Abraham believed. It happened before he was circumcised. Now, I'm no math whiz, but Genesis 15, Abraham's faith, comes before Genesis 17, Abraham's circumcision. And this is what Paul says in Romans 4, Romans 4, 9 to 10. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So this is why Abraham is important. He was counted righteous, a good legal standing, upon his faith in God, his faith in that God would provide. Now the question is, who is counted along with Abraham? Not those who are circumcised. But look at, those, look at verse 7. Those who have the same faith. Paul reckons God's promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him coming in Genesis 12, 3 as the preaching of the gospel. And even though the promise came from God, he says that Scripture preached this to Abraham. For Paul, what God says and what Scripture says are interchangeable. 
So we see the big picture so far. How did God count Abraham as righteous? Faith. Abraham believed that it would be God who accomplished it. Who are those who are counted righteous along with Abraham? Those who believe God, who have the same faith. Faith brings the blessing of Abraham, and the blessing of Abraham is justification. And it was God's plan from the beginning that in Abraham, the nations would come to him in faith. Now he's going to show how all that works out in verse 14, but we have yet to get there. So do you see then why Abraham is relevant, why he should be on our radar? Like Abraham, we are justified while we are still sinners. And we learn much of the true nature of faith from the model of Abraham. The accounts of Genesis 15, when Abraham believes just this almost unbelievable promise. And even the account of Genesis 22, when God tests Abraham and asks him to sacrifice that son he's been waiting for. In both of those chapters, we see Abraham didn't believe in his own performance. Abraham believed in God's provision. He didn't know exactly how God would provide, but he knew that God would have to provide, and he believed God. Now, insofar as being counted as righteous, we are certain how God provides for that. But there are other promises of God that we don't know exactly how he is going to provide. Take trials, suffering, loneliness. We don't know how, but we believe in God's provision. We believe in his goodness, his control, his promise to keep us, and his promise to work in us completed work of what he began. So if God's provision is in what we trust, then it is God who brings it about. It is God who brings it about. This shows us that faith is not a work. Faith is not a work, but a belief in God and his work. You see, faith honors the one in who is trusted. I've heard one pastor use this analogy, that it's like a coach calling a play, and the player ignores it, and then afterward comes to the sideline and blows up in the coach's face. Did that player honor the coach? No, he showed that he didn't trust the coach. So if faith is not a work because it is trusting in someone else, then we have no room for boasting. It is not us who accomplish the work, but God. We do not say, I'm so thankful that I was smart enough or good enough to make that decision to believe. No, we say, I'm so thankful that God provided. Finally, the promise to Abraham shows us God's great plan of reconciling sinners to himself. Friends, the plan of how he does this has always been the same, by grace through faith. And the plan of who will be included among this blessing has been set from the beginning. 
he always had the intention of saving the Gentiles. So let us therefore have confidence in the unified plan of reconciliation presented in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And let us therefore remind ourselves that the gospel's for all people. For Jewish, English, Polish, Arab, Turkish, Kurdish, Indian, Kenyan, Ethiopian, American, Chinese, Korean, Indonesian. I could go on and on and on. The gospel's for all people. That's God's intention. So in verses 10 to 12 then, Paul carries on this antithesis. An antithesis he set up in chapter 2, verse 16, and brought up again in chapter 3, verse 2. He's contrasting two paths and two destinations. He just finished in verses 6 to 9, showing how the path of faith leads to the destination of blessing. And now in verses 10 to 12, he's going to show how the path of relying on the works of the law leads to the destination of a curse. So this is our second point. We realize the law's inability because of our own sinfulness. So Paul explains that the road of relying on the works of the law leads to a curse. Why is this the case? He gives two reasons. The first is that the law requires complete obedience. The law requires complete obedience. He quotes Deuteronomy 27-26 and most likely alludes to Deuteronomy 28-58 as well. So we look at verse 10 and the operative word in this verse is the word all. That's the key word here, the word all. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So to obtain blessing from the law, if you're going to go down this path and you want that destination, you have to keep everything that the law requires. God's standard is perfect. Look at Adam and Eve. Why were they kicked out of the garden? It's for one sin. You look at the system of the law itself. Why were there sacrifices? It's because people would fall short of it. They would disobey. But now Christ has come. He is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. There's no more built-in fail-safe. If you're going to rely on the works of the law, you're on your own. So the law requires complete obedience. And Paul assumes, as the rest of, of Scripture proves, that no one can completely obey. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. So why does relying on the works of the law lead to a curse? Well, not only is it because the law requires complete obedience, but also because Habakkuk 2.4 says that the righteous shall live by faith. Live here means how a person acts, how a person 
lives, behaves. But it also has the deeper sense that a person must live by this way, but a person shall live, shall have eternal life this way. So Habakkuk is writing in a context where there's incoming judgment upon Judah for not obeying God's law. And so God's challenge to them is to continue to trust him, to continue to have faith in God and in his promises. So the story of Abraham and the book of Habakkuk are examples that being right with God is not just about external doing. It's about believing. But the nature of the law is not believing. It's doing. It promises life to those who do. This is what Leviticus 18.5 says, which Paul quotes in verse 12. The problem is not with the law. The law reveals God's character. The law reveals God's holiness. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The law requires doing, and we simply cannot do what the law requires. Therefore, the law cannot bless. It cannot bring that destination of blessing. All it can do is curse because everyone disobeys. And moreover, everyone's accountable. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says that God has given us consciences, a sense of what is right and wrong according to his law. So we're accountable and we've all disobeyed. So this is the other means, the other how, the other path. And this is the other destination. Relying on the works of the law leads to curse. And we don't have the law to blame. We have ourselves to blame. My grandfather used to say, and you've probably heard this saying before, perhaps in a more crass way, uh, that excuses are like butts. Everybody has one, and they all stink. We have a tendency to serve ourselves in how we explain life events. So if something went well that we're involved in, it's probably because we did something well or we were the key to the project. But if something didn't go well, well, it's because the odds were stacked against us and it was completely unfair. Sometimes this comes out in more overt ways than others. And life is hard. But we are responsible for our actions. If we have fallen short of God's standard, we have no one else to blame but ourselves. God's standard of perfection reminds us how much we need grace. The responsibility we have for our sin in the face of God's perfect holiness should humble us. The responsibility we have for our own sins means we should examine ourselves before we ever think about being critical of others. We want to make excuses for ourselves, but it's often the case that the excuses we make for ourselves 
Don't apply to other people. God's perfect standard reminds us that he has one standard to which everyone is accountable. And the point is, if we need grace, other people need grace. And notice I'm not throwing out the standard. Sin is still sin. However, if God's standard and our responsibility teach us anything, it should teach us that we have violated God's standard by our choice, like everybody else. So speaking of looking inward, if that's what God's standard forces us to do, for those who choose to rely on themselves, for those who choose to rely on themselves and think that they are okay without Christ, how will they satisfy the law? How will they live perfectly? There are no built-in fail-safes. There's no other payment for sin. It's Christ or nothing. From seeing all are under a curse of the perfect standard, we should also learn that it is a good thing that God is perfectly holy. It is a good thing. It's not some unfortunate part about him. We should not want anything less than a God who is perfect and a God who has a perfect standard. Indeed, if he was anything less, he would not be God. God treats sin as it should be treated. He's not cruel. He is just. This is the perfect standard. If we follow it, we cannot do it, and it does not lead to the destination of blessing. So if we cannot do it, then God must provide. And we must have faith. This is the antithesis. So how does God provide? You see the climax here? This is the third point. We cling to Christ as our substitute because of his righteousness. If the way is faith and not relying on the works of the law, then how does faith get us out underneath the curse of the law? The cross of Christ is how this comes all together. In other words, God's provision is substitution. And the substitute is Christ. So we looked at verse 13. And verse 13 operates in the world of verse 10. The curse of the law. The curse of the law is the curse of God. And everyone is under it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've established that. Those who complain that God isn't fair have not grasped the goodness of his holiness and how separate he is from us. But in a way, the complaint that God isn't fair is sort of right. However, it's not that judgment isn't fair. God is perfectly just, meaning that he is perfectly fair. On the face of it, what's not fair is mercy and grace. By their very definitions, mercy is unowed. And grace is, is unmerited. It's unearned. How is it fair that Jesus is punished while those who believe in him aren't? 
This is the question. How can God justify us? How can God count us righteous like he did with Abraham? How can God justify us and not be unjust in himself and not compromise his perfection or his perfect standard? How can God justify us and not be unjust himself? The answer is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redeem literally means purchase. It was a term used in the marketplace, and it was most often used to refer to slaves who purchased their own freedom. So Christ purchased our freedom from the curse of the law. But how did he do that? He redeemed us by becoming a curse. By becoming a curse. Notice that he did not merely take on a curse. He became a curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. The cross is evidence of this. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21.23 that all those who are hung on a tree are under God's curse. Now this is the Messiah. This is supposed to be the spotless one. And yet he's under God's curse? Do you see this, how this would be a stumbling block to those who knew their Old Testaments? To those like Paul? A crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. It was a contradiction in terms. If Jesus was truly the spotless Messiah, then why is he under God's curse? How is this fair? The answer to that question comes in two words. In two words. For us. For us. The Messiah was not cursed for his own breaking of the law. He was cursed for our breaking of the law. God remains just in that he brought the punishment for his curse that we earned by counting Jesus as if he had the legal status of being a sinner. Yet God is justifier in that he credits us Jesus' righteousness. That we're not just forgiven. We're not just forgiven, friends. We're regarded as if we've never sinned. Romans 3, 21 to 27 expresses the same truth in more detail. Listen as I read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. No one has achieved righteousness by following that path of the law. But there is righteousness somewhere else. Continuing verse 21. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfaction 
of the judgment for the law that we broke. Back to verse 25. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Here's the important part. So that he might be just. Maintain his perfect standard. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. How is redemption accomplished? How are we purchased? If we have violated God's law and are under his curse, then how does faith bring us a righteous legal standing with God? It is because of what Martin Luther called the sweet exchange. That Jesus takes our curse and that we take his perfect righteousness. Luther says this, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, Christ and the soul. And sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. Christ became a curse for us on the cross. Now what is the result? Paul brings it all together in verse 14. Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, through whom the nations have the same blessing of Abraham. Justification. Because we are united to Christ and his work by faith, we are justified along with Abraham. Jesus is that ultimate provision that God promised. And along with justification, we have received the Spirit who has promised to accompany the new covenant age. This is what God has done. This is what we believe in. If you've ever been to an art museum, you'll usually notice that people just breeze through it. Indeed, there have been studies and galleries have determined that the average person looks at a piece of art for three seconds and then moves by. I am absolutely guilty of this myself, especially in the National Gallery of Art in D.C., where if you want to get through it in a day, you'd probably have to jog. But you notice when you're in an art museum that there are benches. They put benches before pictures. Pictures that don't move, pictures that don't scroll. And they just expect people to sit there. That's sort of weird. And you galleries know that people just breeze by. They know it's such a problem that there's been a movement known as Slow Art Day. On Slow Art Day, museum goers commit to looking at at least five paintings for at least five or ten minutes. If the law forces us to look inward, then the cross forces us to look upward. 
We need to slow down and look up more often. Indeed, every day. Because the cross is far more beautiful than we esteem it. We are humbled by our sin, yet we are lifted up by Jesus on the cross. He takes that curse that our sin brought. It's like that old hymn says that we sung. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The cross takes our eyes off of ourselves. Whether it is in comfort or as a reminder that it isn't all about us. As a reminder to stop being consumed with how others perceive us. Rather to focus on how God accepts us by faith in what Christ has done. This is the beauty of the cross. That God is both just and justifier. That God maintains his holiness and he pours out his love. So we come back to the question of how. How? How are we counted righteous like Abraham? How does faith work to do this? How are we brought out under the curse of the law? How does God not do away with his justice and justify sinners against him? The answer to all these how questions is ultimately Jesus. Because of our sin, we have to have faith in a substitute. And Jesus is the perfect one. By faith, our sin is credited to him, which he carried on the cross. By faith, his righteousness is credited to us. And we are regarded with the blessing of Abraham. Justification. This is how it all comes together. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this wondrous, wondrous gospel. And we confess, Lord, that we have lost so much of our wonder. Bring it back. We marvel at how you are holy and yet you are merciful. We marvel at the sacrifice of Jesus to be sinless and yet to be counted as sin, to become a curse. God, lift our heads up every day to look at the cross. To find our life in Christ. Thank you. Thank you for the blessing that we have not earned, but you have provided in him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.